0: The United Methodist Church is in danger of splitting apart over issues of gender and sexuality. You may already know that, but what you may not know is how we got here. How a simple question from a man from Indiana combined with a single phrase from a man from Texas to change the course of history for the United Methodist Church. We'll have their stories and more of how we got here right here on The Untidy Methodist. The 2019 special called General Conference of the United Methodist Church was supposed to settle everything. How we approach same-sex marriage, the ordination of gay pastors, and all the other attendant issues regarding gender and sexuality. It's not quite how it turned out. The traditional plan passed. The, The traditional plan essentially doubled down on the 1972 General Conference stand that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. But it passed by a very narrow margin. If 27 or 28 votes had gone the other way, a very different result would have come out. And even those who supported the traditional plan walked away disappointed because several key uh, provisions that would have added enforcement to the traditional plan never came up for a vote. The general conference just ran out of time. So, of course, we'll be talking about this again at the regular general conference in 2020. And every side is saying if they don't get their way, they may decide to split off and form a new denomination. Now, I'm the son of a United Methodist pastor, a lifelong Methodist. I'm a certified lay speaker. The, the, the thought of our church splitting apart just breaks my heart. So before we, we reach a point from which we may not be able to return, let's at least look at how we got here. And to do that, I need to introduce you to two men. Russell Kibler of Farmersburg, Indiana, and Donald J. Hand of Universal City, Texas. We also need to talk a little bit about what a General Conference is and how the United Methodist Church came to this point. Let's start there. The General Conference of the United Methodist Church meets every four years. Representatives come from around the globe representing all of the smaller annual conferences, with clergy and lay members alike coming to discuss the major issues affecting our denomination. As part of that, they look at two key documents. One is the Book of Discipline, that essentially tells how we're organized, how we do things. And the other is our Book of Social Principles, which tells who we are and what we believe and and how we stand on a variety of issues. Now, I've probably oversimplified both of those books, but for today's purposes, that'll do. It was in 1968 that the United Methodist Church was formed. The The Methodist Church and the Evangelical United Brethren came together to form this new denomination. They had similar histories, similar theologies. but What we didn't have in 1968 was a, a unified set of social principles. So they established the Social Principles Study Commission, and they were to spend the next four years from 1968 to 1972 coming up with a proposed set of social principles for the delegates to that 1972 uh, conference to uh, review, discuss, amend, and approve. They had a lot to do during those four years, and a lot was going on in the world. 1968 was the height of the Civil Rights Movement. It's the year that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. In politics, Robert Kennedy was also assassinated on the very night he had gained just enough delegates to have won the Democratic uh, nomination for president. 68 was the height of the Vietnam War. The debate over that war was tearing the country apart. In 1969 was Woodstock, one of the heights of a free love of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, uh, the sexual revolution, and it obviously created a lot of discussion in society in general. And 1969 was also the year of Stonewall, which sparked the gay activist movement. This Social Principles Study Commission had a lot to go over, a lot to consider, but eventually they put together their document, and they sent advance copies out to the delegates who would be attending the 1972 General Conference in Atlanta, Georgia, so that they could review it and comment and and come up with what they wanted to say at the conference. Two of these packets went to the gentleman we're talking about. One was Russell Milo Kibler. He was 74 at the time of the convention, a retired automobile insurance agent. He had been exceptionally active in the Methodist Church all of his life. He had married the former Jesse Parsons, and the two of them made quite the duo, providing music and leading music, not just at their church, but at much wider meetings, sub-district and district level and beyond. Uh, He was also a lay speaker, and I found a lot of press clippings from 1947 through the late 1970s, uh, where he was active as a lay speaker and a musician. He would have been a natural choice to be elected as a delegate or alternate delegate, to the general conference and in fact he was elected as a reserve delegate as he was listed in the 1972 journal. Now there are some conflicting uh, accounts where he may have later been seated as a full delegate which would have happened if someone else had not been able to participate but nevertheless he was on the floor of the conference and he had the right to speak. He's the man who came up with the question we'll be talking about in just a moment. Another packet went to John J Hand, a family practice attorney in Universal City, Texas, just outside of San Antonio. Now, he was a bit of a surprise to be added to the conference. Uh, and he came out of some rather raucous meetings of the 1971 annual conference from Southwest Texas. There are a couple of accounts for this. One is uh, an article called The Saddest Day. Uh, Gene Leggett and the Origins of the Incompatible Clause written by Robert W. Sledge. He was one of the witnesses at 1971. The other was a first-hand account from Donald Hand written many years later in 2014 for the United Methodist News. The, the controversies in 1971 centered on two pastors. One was a pastor who had uh, entered into what today we would call a, a polyamorous relationship he and his wife welcomed another woman into their home and into their marriage. And, of course, it created great controversy. There was a judicial proceeding that ended with the demand that he surrender his credentials. He later did so at this 1971 conference, bringing them down to the front of the conference on fire. He had them rolled up like a bouquet and set on fire and left them for for the conference to dispose of. Thankfully, there was someone with the presence of mind to shuffle those into a trash can and pour water from the baptismal font onto it to put out the fire and prevent a a literal conflagration from happening there. It was during, though, the earlier investigation of this pastor that another pastor, Gene Leggett, who was highly respected and admired by his colleagues, uh, by everyone, let the rest of the, the folks investigating know that he was gay. He was standing up for this first pastor and and felt that he needed to state publicly what he thought everyone knew privately. It was his thought that this would be no surprise, that his colleagues had been either aware or at least had suspected this all along. He was wrong, and he was brought up not before a judicial proceeding, but before the 71 conference with another maneuver that was similar, and it, it had the same effect to Uh, take away his ability to act as a pastor. Now, keep in mind, this was, again, two years after Stonewall, so there were protesters on Pastor Leggett's behalf. There was a a group that identified themselves as the Gay Liberation Front who interrupted the proceedings with a list of ten demands, including that the church accept the authenticity of the gay lifestyle, which is a term I don't think gay activists would use today. It ended with a demand that the church cease the harassment of Gene Leggett. More sessions were interrupted, uh, including a worship service later during the conference. Now, it's at this point in time that Donald J. Hand, attorney at law, made the impression that later sent him to the general conference. The next part of this comes from Mr. Hand's own words in that article for the United Methodist News in 2014. He said, In an evening service, two males sitting near the front section on the left side of the sanctuary stood up and berated Bishop Slater when he started a worship service. They continued to harass him regarding the disciplinary action taken against the homosexual pastor. I was seated across the sanctuary near the front on the right-hand side. I looked around the sanctuary and saw that no one was engaged in an effort to quell the disturbance. I thought, this is ridiculous. I got up, walked to the side aisle, down that aisle to the front of the church, across to the front Uh, to the aisle on the left side to where the mail stood. And yes, this is a very highly detailed account. Okay, we'll go back to 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 the account. I told them that they were violating state law by disrupting a church service and could be prosecuted. They would not sit down. I told them that I and others in the gathering wanted to hear the bishop speak. This was also ineffective. So I moved quite near the two and in a low voice suggested, I'm going to add my own inflection to this. I think it's how he said it. It would be well if they would be seated and quiet. And whether he said it that way or not, they did agree, and they were seated and quiet. So he returned to his seat, and this caught the attention of the annual conference. And as a result, he was elected as a full delegate. That's where he was getting ready for Atlanta and received that packet from the Social Principal Study Commission. And, and here's the, the full text of the section that caused him grave concern. After reading this, he he knew he wanted to do something he just did not know what he would do until struck by an idea during the debate itself at the general conference. The section that was proposed was on human sexuality and said, We recognize that sexuality is a good gift of God, and we believe persons may be fully human only when that gift is acknowledged and affirmed by themselves, the church, and society. We call all persons to disciplines that lead to the fulfillment of themselves, others, and society in the stewardship of this gift. Medical, theological, and humanistic disciplines should combine in a determined effort to understand human sexuality more completely. Although men and women are sexual beings whether or not they are married, sex between a man and a woman is to be clearly affirmed only in the marriage bond. Sex may become exploitive within as well as outside marriage. We reject all sexual expressions which damage or destroy the humanity God has given us as birthright, and we affirm only that sexual expression which enhances that same humanity in the midst of diverse opinion as to what constitutes that enhancement. Homosexuals no less than heterosexuals are persons of sacred worth, who need the ministry and guidance of the church in their struggles for human fulfillment as well as the spiritual and emotional care of a fellowship which enables reconciling relationships with God, with others, and with self. Further, we insist that all persons are entitled to have their human and civil rights ensured. That's the passage that brought everyone to Atlanta in 1972. And we're moving now to the Civic Center in Atlanta on the 10th day of the General Conference of the United Methodist Church, on Wednesday, April 26, at the morning session. Bishop Eugene Slater opened the proceedings. The conference sang O oh for a Thousand Tongues and had some devotions. and Various committees presented their reports without really any controversy. The Committee on Courtesies and Privileges remanded, recommended that Dwight Crane be allowed to present a resolution settling an issue regarding a parsonage for a church that had ceased to exist. His presentation, however, was interrupted by the appearance of then-Governor of Georgia and future President of the United States, Jimmy Carter, who addressed the conference, noting that he had been asked how he as a Baptist felt being in the minority of the proceedings. Carter noted he was always in the minority as both his mother and wife were Methodists. You, you get the idea. The day was going swimmingly well no real controversy, no problems at all, other than poor Mr. Crane having to enter his remarks into the journal directly instead of getting to speak after being interrupted by the governor. Eventually that morning, though, we have the Legislative Committee on Christian Social Concerns report number 14, calendar number 444. Edsel Ammons of Northern Illinois, chairman of the committee, presented the report, and this was the committee's work on the report of the Social Principles Study Commission. And Mr. Ammons introduced Robert W. Moon, chair of the subcommittee that had worked on the commission's report for the Legislative Committee on Christian Social Concerns. (laughs) There was and is a lot of bureaucracy involved in the official workings of the United Methodist Church. But basically, we get to Robert W. Moon, who's referred to alternately as Mr. Moon and Dr. Moon in the journal of the conference for that year. He presented the committee report. And there was some discussion on, at first, the topic of abortion, which was still illegal in most of the country. This was about a a full year before Roe v.ersus Wade. The church took the stand that a decision concerning abortion should be made after thorough and thoughtful consideration by the parties involved with medical and pastoral counsel. And it, it took the stand with an amendment that abortion should be removed from the criminal code. Surprisingly, considering today's debate on that same issue, it didn't create a major stir, at least not according to the Journal of the Conference. But it's at this point that we meet Russell Kibler, representing the South Indiana Conference. He came to the microphone to ask a question. He said, I want to ask a question, and I may want to make an amendment. At the top of the page, having to do with homosexuals, we have a statement there at the close of that paragraph. Further, we insist that homosexuals are entitled to have their human and civil rights insured. My question is, what do we mean by this? That question started the debate. Dr. Moon replied that this was an attempt to affirm our concern that some homosexuals are not allowed to keep their positions once it's discovered that there are homosexuals. They lose the right to employment in some places. This seems unjust and a violation of a natural right that is theirs. In other words, this was an anti-discrimination resolution rather than a recognition of same-sex marriage or gay pastors, And I'm guessing that right up to this moment in time, Dr. Moon anticipated that this would not create any major issue. As we know now, this was absolutely not the case. Mr. Kibler continued, I think I'll make a motion. I move you, sir, that we delete that sentence. Further, we insist that homosexuals are entitled to have their human and civil rights insured. If I get a second, I'll tell you why. So after he spoke in favor of his amendment, the debate was really and truly on with statements trying to amend this in one direction or the other. Carlton Dodge of Eastern Pennsylvania moved to amend the motion to delete the last two sentences, including the sentence that homosexuals no less than heterosexuals are persons of sacred worth. Marvin Boyd of Northwest Texas tried a different approach, proposing that the words all persons be substituted for the word homosexuals. Now, during this time, the debate must have been getting rather heated As the journal notes that as a matter of privilege, Marshall C. Heltie of the Pacific Northwest requested that persons refrain from applauding statements made in debate. Other accounts of the day indicated that this in itself elicited applause. It it sounds like the debate was getting raucous, and it sounds a lot like the debates that have happened ever since, including at the special general conference of 2019. C.W. Hancock of South Georgia asked a question that, that could have been a bit of a trap but I have to tell you, looking back at the full transcript of this, I'm not sure whose side he was on. And, and you'll hear some some things that go in both directions. He started out with, my question is directed to the committee. I'd like to know if this it's the interpretive mind of the committee that in this report they have presented to us that they are saying that homosexuality is a normal and acceptable expression of sexuality in our society. Now, if Dr. Mooney had replied no, he risked losing much of the support for the original proposal and saying yes also had the risk of losing votes from other groups attending. So he took a middle road and answered, I have a feeling that the general conference itself would not want to say that. If you are going to say that what is normal is what is practiced by a majority of people, then you read Dr. Kinsey's book, that was the, the Kinsey report on human sexuality that had been highly controversial in the 40s and 50s. And you realize that many things are described as normal, which you and I would be unwilling to support, so I think that we were not trying to answer that question at all by the statement. Mr. Hancock pressed the issue further, and Dr. Moon replied, we are not trying to answer the question as to the normality of homosexuality. We did not produce that kind of a document. Mr. Hancock then noted We are to assume that this is addressing itself to a real relevant point in our society, then, from this committee to which Dr. Moon stated, that's right. Now, the the journal of the 1972 General Conference is not a word-by-word transcript. It has several of the highlights, but it doesn't give you every, every blow back and forth of the debate. So it's at this point that we find Dr. Moon addressing some of the arguments that were made from the floor but had not been previously included in the journal make of these what you will he said i'd like to respond in part to some of the comments that were made we too are concerned about the kidnapping of young boys and the kidnapping of a 14 year old and things like this but i want to remind the conference that things like this are really not before us now We know that girls, young girls, are kidnapped by heterosexual males, and the evidence suggests that violent sexual crimes are excessive in proportion among heterosexual, between heterosexuals and homosexuals, even in proportion to the numbers that there are in our midst. One of those who spoke in favor of the amendments was greatly concerned about illegitimate children. It would be a very rare thing if there was an illegitimate child as a result of a homosexual contact. We think that this general conference has come a long way, and so has our society in recent years in understanding the nature of sexuality in ourselves and in others. It seems to us, as we have surveyed the situation, that this is exactly the kind of a statement that the general conference ought to be making at this time. We did not develop this, as one of the speakers suggested, as the result of hearing a homosexual speak to us. There were homosexuals with us this week, as you know. But the framework for this statement was shaped by the committee that studied the social principles over several years. It is not anything that comes to us hurriedly or as the result of plea made by a homosexual himself. It represents the honest concern of well-informed people. Now, Dr. Moon thought this was going to be a final statement, but the debate continued. Victor C. Vinland from the Northwest Philippines proposed an amendment to add the statement, We do not recommend marriage between two persons of the same sex. That amendment did not pass. It's now that Donald J. Hand of Southwest Texas makes his stand at the General Conference. He stated in his 2014 article that there had been about two hours of debate over the merits of the proposed paragraph 72C with no consensus. He said, I listened and studied every aspect of this proposal with no major constructive thought crossing my mind. My attention kept returning to the last sentence and I concluded that this might be the only place that would afford opportunity to resolve the issue. Suddenly, a proposal complete with punctuation hit me. Change the period to a comma? Add the words, though we do not condone the practice of homosexuality and consider this practice incompatible with Christian doctrine. I wrote this idea down as required for presentation to the presiding officer showed it to my friend Tom Revely, then a justice on the Supreme Court of Texas, and asked him what he thought about it. Justice Revely, like many members of the Assembly, was not very confident that anything presented would get us out of the deadlock. He said, I think it will provide the language needed to bring acceptance to the matter before us, but I doubt it will pass, but maybe you should try it. Now the time was at hand, pardon the pun, for the morning session to end but the chair extended the time to allow this morning session to continue Hamill ships of southern new jersey offered a much more strongly worded substitute but it was eventually defeated in favor of mr hand's proposal but it doesn't end there a motion to reconsider was introduced and adopted pushing this matter to the afternoon session so we come back after lunch and after some pre-planned business like the first and second ballots for the judicial council members we came back to the report of the Social Principles Study Commission. They first talked about divorce, and afterwards Mr. Boone asked the permission of the conference to amend Donald Hans' phrase, changing Christian doctrine to the now more familiar and debated Christian teaching. This was adopted, and the discussion went on to other areas of the Social Principles Study Commission report, apparently without much controversy. It's certainly not with this level of debate. And that's how we got here. It's how we came from uh, a statement of anti-discrimination to a statement that said it's incompatible with Christian teaching. We've had this debated at almost every general conference since, and we'll probably revisit again in 2020. As for the two gentlemen, Russell Kibler went back home to southern Indiana and continued to be highly active through at least the late 1970s. He passed away in 1988 at the age of 90 while living in a Methodist home. Donald J. Han may still be with us. That's not clear from my research. We do know that the Texas Bar lists him as no longer being active in practice, although his professional corporation is still in business, presumably manned by other attorneys. In 2014, he was asked to write for the United Methodist News and gave his full account, which we've been quoting quite liberally here, uh, and also including his belief that he had saved the Methodist Church at that time. And what happens next is up to the delegates that are going into 2020. As we get closer to that time, we'll have more podcasts talking about what's happened since 1972, all of the judicial council hearings, uh, all of the church trials, and all the other controversies that have happened since. And we'll also talk about other events in the history of the Methodist Church that may lend some relevance to this discussion. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, please like and subscribe so we can notify you of future episodes as they're posted. Thanks for listening to The Untidy Methodist. The Untidy Methodist is written and produced by Ed Garrett and is not authorized by nor does it represent an official stand of the United Methodist Church. Your comments and suggestions are welcome.